Our next speaker is Mr. Mick Wallace. Madness. Madness. This is madness. We cannot fix a problem caused by capitalism with more capitalism. They hurt the people. I ended up at the end of a gun on three occasions. I done well to survive anyway. Madame Delirious. A union which allows fiscal rules to be broken for arms expenditure, not for housing or to put roofs over the heads of people. This is evidence of police violence. Whether you're an economic migrant or you're an asylum seeker, nobody deserves to be treated like this. And even having the net to suggest separating people from their mothers. How dare you? They don't need us to kick them around the place. You could say it so much. The police in riot gear with Trump. I am ashamed to call myself a European. The recognition of Guaido. elected gobshite is an absolute embarrassment. Now, you did use the word gobshite, and, sir. Uh, I would re- reprimand you over that. Hello and welcome back to another episode of I Foresee Trouble. This week we're in Strasbourg um, and we have a fair few things to talk about. Uh, one of the big things on the agenda, they've obviously, they heard about our trip to China. They're <laughs> reacting to that. Um, and Ursula von der Leyen, everyone was in talking about China, mainly slating China um, and really ramping up the belligerent anti-China rhetoric. Um, so that's one of the big things we're going to discuss. Also, there was some some debates about battle groups, EU battle groups. So that's a, another uh, kind of on the militarism heading, uh, looking at ramping up EU militarism and how that's happening in here in the parliament. Uh, And then finally, there was a lot of debates about the Fit for 55 package, which is kind of different files about sustainability and the environment. So they're the three big things we're going to talk about this week. Thought we'd maybe start off with China, topic dear to, to both of your hearts. Um, yeah, I mean, it was kind of interesting. I mean, it certainly is a case of all roads leading to China. It's a very much a reflection of the fact that they're the biggest player globally now. Obviously, Ursula von der Leyen was back after her sort of visit. And the title, the unfortunate title of the debate was, which went on for hours, was the need for an EU-China coherent strategy. And then one after the other got up and started knifing each other and displaying the total incoherence of the EU response to China because a whole number of people chose to either um, compliment Macron's um, initiative and his sort of approach where he very much put, I suppose, Europe first or what he put was France first, went there, argued for good relations with China, uh, came back with a lot of contracts, probably for French business and was treated like a king. Or Sylvain von der Leyen went to lecture China uh, about the need for them to, you know, deliver peace and not give guns to uh, Russia, which is a bit ironic when they're supplying loads of arms to Ukraine and they're poo-pooing China's peace deals. So we had a lot of that contradiction going on, Um, a lot of aggression and a lot of really unhelpful tone where scarily uh, Taiwan kept featuring as a big sort of ogre and we have to hope that China don't attack Taiwan and we have to look at the aggression of China towards Taiwan. But nowhere factoring in that China is under all international and you know law and UN charter Taiwan is a part of China so you can't really be aggressive against yourself you can obviously behave poorly towards your citizens and many EU countries and others do that China included I'm sure but 
this idea of provoking your own country and nothing said about how the president of Taiwan went to and was a guest of the US uh, Speaker of the House, how the US Navy are going through Chinese uh, naval waters. It was all focused on Chinese aggression and ratcheting it up, which is actually not a flexion of reality. I thought that was interesting, Mick. I don't know if you, the whole feature, how Taiwan featured so strongly. Yeah, I mean, obviously it, it borders on the irrational. But uh, I, I was reading yesterday, I, I got a copy of von der Leyen's speech before she went to China. Uh, I know we mentioned it before, but I want to read a few uh, things that she said as they're pretty shocking. It was really, it's kind of scary, right? But I, I, I just go through a couple of the points that she made, right? Um, she said, as a permanent member of the Security Council, China has a responsibility to safeguard the principles and values that lie at the heart of the UN Charter. And China has a responsibility to play a constructive role in advancing a just peace. Now, I mean, the hypocrisy. I mean, first of all, Europe and the US are ignoring the UN Charter almost on a daily basis. China hasn't dropped a bomb on anyone in 40 years. China is arguing for peace in Ukraine. And the West are keeping the war going because it suits NATO uh, and the US. Then she goes on to say how China continues to inter interact with Putin's war will be a determining factor for EU-China relations going forward. And of course, China itself has also taken a more assertive stance in its own neighbourhood. The show of military force in the South China Sea and East China Sea and at the border with India directly affect our partners in their legitimate interests. Now, you swear this was Europe's backyard that she was talking about. She goes on to say how China meets international obligation regarding human rights will be another test for how and how much we can cooperate with China. Just as China has been ramping up its military posture, it has also ramped up its policies of disinformation and economic and trade coercion. This is a deliberate policy targeting other countries to ensure they comply and conform. I mean, is this woman on drugs? I mean, uh, then, then she lets out three, three main points that she wanted to make about China. The first, she says, is that China has now turned the page on the era of reform and opening, uh, and opening up and is moving into a new era of security and control. The second conclusion, she says, uh, is that the imperative for security and control now trumps the logic of free markets and open trade. Well, I mean, Jesus, maybe might not be any harm if free markets uh, were... were uh, reined in a little bit and my last point she says her third, third point and that is that the Chinese Communist Party's clear goal is a systemic change of the international order with China at its centre we have seen it with China's positions in multilateral bodies which show its determination to promote an alternative vision of the world order one where individual rights are subordinated to national security where security and economy take prominence over political and civil rights. We have seen it with the Belt and Road Initiative, new international banks or other China-led institutions set up to rival the current international system, as if that was illegal. Like. And then she finished, we have seen it with China's set of global initiatives and by how it positions itself as a power and peace broker, for instance, through the recent Saudi and Iran agreement. I mean, she's, she's criticising. China have helped to bring Saudi and Iran together in a peaceful way. And she's criticising it because, oh, my God, how dare China uh, put herself forward as, as, as a peacemaker? 
if, if the European Union does not change its position, if they're going to allow people like von, von der Leyen to dictate uh, the policy in this manner, God help us. Well, they're going to be bypassed, and that's the reality of what happened. I mean, the Chinese completely bypassed her when her she was there. They gave Macron the royal treatment, but what was a bit weird was the number of MEPs who got up on here and kind of applauded her stance and gave out about Macron. Now, we're obviously very good at giving out about uh, Macron. In fairness, Mick gave a belting speech on Monday night highlighting the repression of the French police and how awful things have been going there. But in terms of his approach to China and his failure to act as a puppet of the US, that was exactly the right thing to do in that circumstance. But I mean, I think what we saw was her speaking out of two sides of their mouth. And this is the dilemma for the European Union. And Burrell reflected it as well, because when she started off her speech in the plenary, having done what she did, as Mick just outlined there, she started praising how wonderful it was to be in China, how great it was, how wonderful progress and achievements, how diversity, the cultural diversity that China had and all this stuff, how they'd lifted people out of poverty. I'm going, God almighty, this woman has been chastened now the way the China... And then she sort of put the boot in and Braille put the boot in, kind of going on, Taiwan is crucial for Europe. Is it? Like, why? Like, it's it's not anywhere near you. Stop fecking interfering. And the truth is, is that the US is teeing up China to be the next Ukraine. And by that, I mean, like all of the interference that went on from the US and NATO in Ukraine since the you know start of 2014 and before uh, interfering that we see happening in Taiwan. And the visit of the Taiwanese president to the US wasn't helpful. The US, I made the point that this would be like in international law and everything else, this would be like the president of, of Catalonia going and being hosted by the Chinese as a head of state um, and what do you think the reaction of Spain would be to that uh, or to the Chinese Navy going up the Mediterranean and sailing around there to beat the ban because the Chinese military wanted to protect the Mediterranean? Uh, it's the same equivalent. That is going to provoke you and get on your nerves. And I mean, we'd be seriously hoping that the Chinese wouldn't respond. We made those points to them when we met them, that obviously Putin had made a grave mistake and uh, cr- committed a, a crime in international law by invading Ukraine. We have made the point many times it was absolutely unjustified, but it was provoked. And clearly there's a provocation here going on with Taiwan. And what Europe should be doing is dampen it down, de-escalating, but they're actually accelerating it again. Scary. Yeah, I mean, the idea that uh, Taiwan is a big concern for them, obviously, the Americans have been lording it over the planet uh, for many, many years. They have, they have around 800 military bases uh, away from America. 800 military bases worldwide, and they're still building them. They're building four new ones in the Philippines now. They've just uh, signed off on a contract for them. Right? China has one military base outside of the China and the South China Sea, and that's in Djibouti. One. And the Americans have 800. And we're, we're pretending that China is a threat to peace and security in the world. She couldn't have insulted the Chinese more before she went. There's a little wonder that didn't put much pass on her when she went. But this is interference. It's on the part of the EU, and along the same style of what the Americans get up to on a daily basis. But it's like as if colonialism never stopped. And it's 
it's just it's like as if they can't stop them they can't help themselves they think they have a divine right to interfere in Africa in Latin America all across Asia they have a divine right still whereas they give out about other people interfering uh, in Europe I mean the hypocrisy is shocking we have values we have values now we have interest that's (laughs) what we have (laughs) but it is it's nauseating and uh, the hypocrisy is well we've highlighted it many times before but I think it's the arrogance now that's striking and I think when you have the privilege I suppose of going to other parts of the world and you see the countries where people come from different cultures and live in places where the majority of the world's population live you know there's a new alliance uh, developing globally and Europe does have a choice to know, you know, what is which side, not which side it's on, because we don't take sides. We want to have good relations with the US, but it's completely wrong that we would just slavishly follow their agenda. It's important that we have good relations with everybody else. And it's important that the world is run multilaterally rather than having one headbutt cat in town. Yeah, mm-hmm. we should probably both of us got a chance to speak on China this week, uh, and they're they're just they're very short. Uh, we should probably include them in the mm. podcast. Mm. If the EU should have a coherent strategy for the EU-China relations, it should not originate in Brussels. We just had the embarrassing spectacle of the Commission President speaking ahead of a major diplomatic visit to China and slinging accusations at a Chinese government that have scant connection to reality. The remarks were so bizarre and contradictory, it was difficult to decipher who their intended audience was. The fact is that some EU countries have good relations, trade and otherwise with China, and other EU countries are less enthusiastic. There's a Washington-led campaign to counter China's economic influence in the world. So we see US talking points about internal repression and assertive behaviour abroad being parroted by EU representatives while the U.S. has no problem growing its trade and investment with China year on year. U.S. financial capital wants to make profits in China and in Europe, and driving a wedge between the EU and China is a good way of going about it for them. And very sadly, there's people in Brussels who appear to be helping them to do it. I have to say that yesterday's discussion on EU-China relations really beat all. People talked about unity while exposing division. They lectured China about peace while the EU is pumping arms into Ukraine. They bemoaned Chinese provocation in Taiwan, but said nothing about US interference in what is the internationally recognized part of China. How would Spain react if the president of Catalonia was a guest of the Chinese government and the Chinese Navy sailed up the Mediterranean? That's the equivalent. Can we please have some consistency? The issue is quite simple. The days of colonial domination by Western powers are over. There's a new non-white, non-Western global order emerging based on international law, multilateralism rather than the dollar. And of course the US is panicking over the loss of its domination. But the question for Europe is, do we want to be a vassal of our Atlantic friends or do we want to have good independent relations with China, our biggest trading partner who haven't dropped a bomb on anyone in 40 years? It's very obvious which is in the best interest Thank of your citizens. Thank you very citizens. much. Uh, so, uh, on the topic of uh, international affairs, multilateralism, you know, growing multipolarity, uh, there's been new discussion about EU battle groups. Um, and this is all kind of part of an increasing 
militarization of the EU, the kind of slow creep towards a European army in some ways. Um, so do either of you want to kind of fill us in on? I think there's a number of interesting things about that. Um, about what's going on here. I mean, we've just come from a session now where we discussed the new IPCC climate report and the dangers of humanity basically being exterminated in the very near future if we don't take change tack and deal with the climate crisis. And one of the big areas, I suppose, where this has been ignored is the whole area of war, which has a huge environmental cost and they never, ever factor that in. And what we see both in terms of international relations and the environment is a growing acceleration towards militarism. The military industrial complex seem to be calling the shots globally. Um, and we were talking here last night, both of us, about the fact that in Ireland, we voted against Nice, we voted against Lisbon, we didn't want an EU army. But if you read the document that we voted on yesterday about rapid deployment capacity, it is in everything but name an EU army. It calls for collective action. Uh, Burrell described it as boots on the ground in certain areas, even where the people in those countries didn't want us involved. It's joint procurement, joint logistics a centralised HQ under the leadership, you know, aligned to NATO. I mean, what in God's name is it other than an EU army? Yeah, and I mean, this is all about deploying military outside of Europe, right? It's us interfering in other countries. Now, I, I, I spoke about it before where I went to Mozambique last November to, to view two EU missions, training missions. I mean... Unbelievable. We're, tra- we're training Mozambique soldiers to fight against uh, Islamic fighters to make the place safe for uh, European companies to make money by exp- exp- uh, excavating for gas. It's just absolute nonsense. But wh- what, I mean, we pointed out this week or last night when we were speaking on this, right, uh, that we have EU missions where we, we don't even understand the local dynamics a lot of the time. And we, we end up making the things worse. And very often the local population comes to see the EU as the enemy. And that's what's happening. We're, we're applying military solutions. And it's not a solution. But we're coming up with military uh, ideas to deal with problems in countries where, that, that's where we're interfering. Where in actual fact, that's not what the people want. If we were prepared to invest in them and help them to develop uh, their society, they might be they might actually see us as a friend. But if we're going in uh, with with guns uh, to to sort out their problems, that's not what they want. And we're 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 making not only problems for ourselves. We all know that China is dramatically uh, invested in Africa as well. It's it's probably uh, I'd say taking more minerals out of Africa than anybody else at the moment. But they don't bring guns, right? They're actually investing in a place. Now, I'm, I, there's no doubt about it, but they're going there of their own financial interest. Uh, they want to, to get the minerals that they need for themselves. And uh, that's what they do. It's, it's a capitalist venture. And, but, I mean, they're building railways. They're building apartments. They're building uh, water facilities. I mean, this is a, a positive approach, and we're going in with soldiers and guns and we say, oh, it's all about security. Oh, is it now? 
Well, I mean, yeah, as you say, I mean, the Chinese aren't doing it just because they're nice people, even though loads of Chinese people are very nice, as people are everywhere. We're not saying that. Um, but they're doing it in their own interest. But it's it's way less harmful than the uh, activities of the Europeans. But then when the local population turn against the European Union, they go... They're just being the victims of Chinese and Russian disinformation. No, they aren't. They're actually getting a better deal out of the others, you know. Whereas obviously Africa should be allowed to develop itself and everyone should feck off and leave them alone, to be honest, but uh, work cooperatively with them together, but in their interests rather than the interests of external forces. But, but you know. But for, for too many years, we've, we've listened to the Americans and the Europeans interfering in other areas and claiming that they're bringing democracy and values to other countries. Now, that's not what they're doing. They're uh, they're exploring the, the potential for financial gain and uh, c- calling it exporting democracy and values is a total... It's disinformation that they accuse others of doing. Every country engages in disinformation, but we need to wake up to the fact that uh, we do it too. Mm. Yeah, and the irony of von der Leyen going in to the China visit, talking about their economic and trade coercion and all of that is just, it's its pretty rich. Um, but so the last topic, I think we can kind of segue into that. The last topic uh, is also related to energy. Um, so alternative to extraction is obviously renewable energy and there's an increasing urgency um, for the transition to renewable energy. There's a big package of measures under the Fit for 55 heading, which is the idea of reducing emissions by 55% by 2030. Um, so both of you just talked on that this week. Uh, Mick, do you want to talk yeah, us through? Well, I mean, first, obviously, the, the, the 55% reduction targets uh, is far too low anyway. And I just listened to... Um, a, a very good MEP uh, highlight the fact that the, it shouldn't have been 55, it should have been 70 we should have been aiming for, uh, especially given the EU's historical contribution to global rising temperatures and the EU's capacity to reduce its emissions. So we're actually, while we're, we are making progress and we are doing some good things, we are not doing enough, right? And uh, sadly... The, the 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 individual legislative files that we're discussing this week that are part of the fit 55 package uh, when the legislative process has been completed they actually they, they won't even add up to the overall 55 percent reduction target and the final outcome of the emission trading system process is completely unfit to contribute uh, towards the EU's goal of reducing its overall emissions by at least 55% by 2030. And it's way off the mark for what's required to keep temperatures rises within the relatively safe zone of 1.5 degrees Celsius, which was agreed at the Paris Agreement, right? But, I mean, the ETS has totally failed to deliver any meaningful reductions in industrial emissions from sectors such as steel, cement and chemicals. And this is mainly due to the billions of free pollution permits given to energy-intensive industries under the scheme. And we're just not learning from it. Uh, we're giving people permission, uh, provided they pay a few bob, to continue polluting. We've got to change uh, the way forward. And it is possible. It is manageable. And some people on the right wing, and even an EPP have been, the Fine Gael's, uh, group, have been atrocious on the climate. They're really uh, clawing back and eroding uh, environmental ambition all over the, the shop they are it's really disappointing 
Yeah, I mean, and again, it's it's this same thing. And everyone was at it. And well, not everybody, because some we had some really choice climate deniers who made a holy show of themselves this morning. Like, you know, there, there's nothing wrong at all. Uh, but I think th- this is the issue for the, the a lot of the groups in here. And most of the MEPs were talking about the situation, and the need for us to do more. But when it comes to the details of the files and the actual work that we do practically to see, are we doing more? They become the victims of the lobbyists. And I thought it was good that you did highlight the role of the EPP group in particular, because they are the ones who quite often get the numbers to succeed and push. And they're at the forefront of pushing all the time a watering down of some of the measures that are necessary. And they kind of say, oh, we're the best in the world. Europe is, is great at these measures. And Europe is one of the better ones. But we're not, that doesn't mean we're good enough. It's no good being best in the class if, if the class is all not very good like so that's the problem and in fairness I suppose there was they were very everybody had to recognise the development that China has made and it was interesting because a number of people contacted us after our programme last week who had been in China before and they were all asking us about pollution and that because people who visited China 20 years ago or so used to kind of blow their nose and it would be all black or cough and the air would be very metallic we there was none of that there now. So it does show what progress and investment can deliver. But from a European point of view, we also need to uh, move to a bit of uh, degrowth and, and they are certainly not on that page. No, and it was very interesting at today's debate, which was on the IPCC report, right? And I thought the commissioner was very good at the end. Commissioner Schmidt uh, was excellent. Now, we, we, we were pointing out to him that... Uh, the Green Deal was a great idea. It wasn't. It was a far cry from what was needed, but it was a really a step in the right direction, right? But many of the initiatives uh, won't see the light of day because they're being eroded by the likes of the EPP. There's the reach. What's happening to us? The soil health law. What's happening to us? And all the promises in the farm to fork. Loads of them are not going to be delivered, right? So I mean. Uh, there's, we're literally seeing the slow death of the Green Deal and a lot of it is just pure political cowardice. They're, prepared to t- they're, they're, they're not prepared. The likes of the EPP group are not prepared to take on vested interest and big industry and to bring in the right measures. So we're, we're kind of... It's like a slow death. It's mad, right? And uh, the EPP seem to be on a rampage to guillotine the little bit of climate ambition uh, that's left in it, right? And they keep talking about, oh, but what about food security? Well, as we pointed out today, they should read the IPCC report then because they might be surprised to learn that climate change is threatening our food security. But they're actually using food security as an excuse uh, not to... And and it's, it's not true, uh, this is completely uh, fabricated. They're also using the war uh, as a reason. All oh, food security is, is, is under more threat because of the war. So we have to roll back on some environmental measures to make sure that we don't have a problem with food security. Listen, we're, uh, Europe is exporting wheat. Even if we, didn't, if we didn't get a grain of wheat from Ukraine, we'd still be exporting wheat. And the idea that, they, that they're using the war... Uh, and, and using this threat of food security uh, to roll back on environmental ambition is, is a disgrace, really, on the heart of the EPP group. And 
Fine Gael should have a good look at themselves. Well, I mean, if they were serious about the war, they'd draw the conclusion that there's an urgent need to end it and to embark on a diplomatic road. We made the point that diplomacy is climate action because it actually is. Because all of the jet fuel and all of the bombs and all of the methane explosions from Nord Stream 2, they all create huge environmental footprint. But the reason why they're doing it and why the EPP, as Fine Gael does at home, is they represent the interests of big business. Um, They haven't got an urgency behind this. We saw it in aviation whereby the long haul flights, they only account for 6% of flights out of the EU, but they're responsible for half the emissions. But they've been opted out and left out of the ETS trading system and given a far easier one in the UN Corsia scheme. So again, all this little chipping away and all of that was the lobbying from the big old airlines to sort of do this. And that's why they chip away at all of this. And unfortunately, it's, it's tomorrow's young people who are going to pay the price of that. Yeah, there's a very good uh, environmental report uh, on the impact of military action as well. And they're saying that it's causing large scale deforestation and even wildfires and is having a big impact on biodiversity. Military action. But no one is calling for an end to military action. Instead, we're escalating in Europe. And we have Fianna Fáil's Michal Martin and, and, and sadly Varadkar absolutely pushing uh, this whole increased military spend now in Europe as well and they're gung-ho about getting more involved. They're still not saying they want, they want to go into NATO but it does look to me like they do want to only they know the people are not in that space and God help us if the Irish are so hoodwinked by the mainstream media that we start supporting this idea of abandoning our neutrality and moving uh, into NATO, it would be an absolute disaster for Ireland. They're playing a game where they say, oh God, no, we're definitely not going to join NATO. But the reality is that the EU's defence mechanism is being embedded in NATO, whereby in everything but name, if we go down that road any further, we are going to be working with NATO. So it doesn't matter. That's where the EU army is kind of going to be. But the last point maybe would have been, which I thought was a bit interesting, was we did get a chance to feature journalists and all of that, and they moved hot foot um, this week with uh, a resolution in relation to the case of Vladimir uh, Karamurza, who is the anti-Putin, anti-Ukrainian war Russian journalist who this week was given a 25-year sentence for his journalism in Russia. And this was obviously rightly condemned by the EU. Moving very swiftly, uh, the decision was made this week and uh, we had an urgency on it and we obviously echoed the call that this man should not be in prison and he should be released. But a bit sickening that uh, four years since Julian Assange is in prison, uh, we've never had a motion about Julian and he's without his freedom a lot longer for his anti-war journalism where he faces 175 years. Yeah, and I mean... Everyone knows that Julian Assange is in prison because he told the truth and exposed US-NATO war crimes. That's why he's in prison. And the fact that the European Union has done nothing to secure his release. They talk about press freedom. They talk about freedom of expression. They talk about uh, protecting journalists. But only they're selective when they do it. Now, uh, I also called for the release of Navalny and Karamurza. It's completely wrong. They should be released. But uh, let's also call for the release of Julian Assange. And while as long as the European Union remains silent and refuses to work for the release of Julian Assange, they haven't an ounce of credibility.
And that's the issue because, I mean, people say, oh, that's what about is and what you just deal with the what issue of today. Yourself? And it isn't like it isn't. It's about consistency in approach. And as you say, if the European Union is not consistent on these issues, well, then it has no credibility on them. And it allows countries like Russia to say, would you get away? Stop lecturing us about us putting fellas in prison when you're standing by and allowing other lads get in prison for journalism in the European Union and you're doing nothing about it. So it's a lack of credibility. And it is being used for... This is the weaponisation of human rights, which goes on here all the time. I mean, we're on the record as opposing Navalny being in prison, even though he is an ultra-right-wing Russian racist nationalist. Um, He still shouldn't be... In prison, this is completely wrong. But where's the motion for the release of Mikhail and Alexander Konechiev, the two uh, young Ukrainian communists, all of the other Ukrainian opposition political leaders who are in prison, the trade union people, the journalists? Why don't we all include them all? Let's do it. You know, it's not that they we don't condemn the Russian ones. Of course we do. But we have to include them all. And Europe doesn't do that. So that's why people outside of Europe think that they have no credibility at all because their values aren't values. They're geopolitical interests. Yeah, I mean, aside from Assange even, um, if we really had these European values, how in God's name can we stay silent when the Israelis slaughter Palestinians on a daily basis. The apartheid state of Israel is persecuting Palestinians and the European Union stays silent. It's too bad. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's it. So another hypocritical week over in Strasbourg. Um, No doubt there'll be another one next week in in Brussels. Um, But sure, look, we'll keep chipping away. Uh, exposing the hypocrisy. A number of important anti-war events as well on over the weekend. There's a Stop the War Coalition in meeting in Bristol, in London, um, and some other initiatives that we are going to take across the Atlantic with our Atlantic friends, because contrary to popular opinion, we are very fond of ordinary American people and American citizens. Um, and there'll be some news on that front as well. Very good. Or for All the best. All the best.